Good morning. Uh, this uh, hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. The hearing today is entitled Emerging External Influences in the Western Hemisphere. I apologize to the witnesses and to the members. It has a, um, been an interesting morning, uh, and navigating the hallways was uh, quite an adventure. But uh, I, I appreciate your patience in being here. Uh, the panel today is going to feature Emmanuel Ottolenghi, the senior fellow, Foundation for Defense, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense for Democracies, and, of course, Eric Farnsworth, the vice president of the Council of the Americas. I welcome the opportunity to have them testify here today. I also want to thank all of you who are here and in attendance. At this hearing, it's my hope that we can examine external political and economic influences on our hemisphere from traditional state actors such as Russia and China, Iran and North Korea. We'll also consider the potential terrorist threat posed by external terrorist groups such as ISIL, who are potentially radicalizing susceptible individuals in small countries throughout the hemisphere, and in particular the Caribbean. Some of these individuals are motivated to travel to join the fight in Syria and Iraq, and others may pose a risk for conducting attacks in their home countries or even seeking to enter the United States to do the same. Countering radicalization online within a small factor of the Muslim community and corresponding threat of homegrown violent extremism is perhaps one of the greatest challenges that we face in protecting innocent Americans at home from lone wolf terrorist attacks like those we've seen in Boston and San Bernardino and Orlando. The fact that this terrorist threat is spreading to other nations in our hemisphere should concern us all. For instance, Trinidad and Tobago is a prime example of a small Caribbean nation currently struggling with the threat of radicalization. According to a New York Times article from 21 February of this year, the Trinidadian government recently introduced a series of amendments that would criminalize membership in the Islamic State and other extremist organizations. That is an obvious legal reform that the United States must demand and hope to achieve from other countries in the hemisphere for the safety of their own citizens and our own. According to the New York Times, this new Trinidadian law would stipulate people who traveled to certain regions would be presumed to be doing so for terrorism. Trinidad has a population of just 1.3 million, but it had 130 of its citizens travel to Syria to fight for ISIL. The U.S., with 321 million people, has seen 250 citizens travel to join ISIL by comparison. And uh, I, I want to hear from our witnesses about what the United States can do to work with Trinidad and other nations in the region struggling with these challenges. In particular, I want to hear what roles should the Department of State, Justice, Homeland Security, and Southern Command and the Defense Department be playing to reduce and confront radicalization. This hearing is also an opportunity to consider the continued illicit financial activities of Hezbollah, Iran, and other actors, enabled by some governments in the region with a history of anti-democratic postures. I also want to hear uh, the current status of illicit financing and the financing of Hezbollah in particular. What is its posture in Latin America today? How are the activities of Hezbollah supported by travel from Iranian officials, particularly MOIS and the Quds Force? More broadly, it's important to examine how our adversaries in countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, through renewed diplomatic, military, and intelligence cooperation, are affecting our standing in the region. We'll also examine the links between external actors and the production of trafficking and selling of illegal drugs in the Western Hemisphere and the bankrolling of global terrorist activities. For instance, with a peace agreement in Colombia, how are Mexican transnational criminal organizations filling the void left, potentially left by the FARC? In 2014, I led, the Senate, the, I led in the Senate the Hezbollah International Financing Prevention Act of 2014 to prevent Hezbollah and associated entities from gaining access to international financial institutions, but there's more to be done, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. And with that, I turn it over to the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm glad we're keeping the subcommittee uh, active, exploring the myriad pressing issues uh, that we have in our own hemisphere, even as we are challenged by events elsewhere in the world. Uh, let me welcome our witnesses, Dr. Olenghi and uh, Mr. Eric Farnsworth, the Vice President of the Council of the Americas, who is uh, has a great deal of expertise in the hemisphere that I've uh, found valuable uh, over time. Uh, as you and I both note, Mr. Chairman, this body and indeed uh, most of the headlines out of the foreign policy community 
often overlook our own hemisphere and by extension our closest neighbors and some of our most important allies. Over the course of its history, the United States has certainly influenced our neighbors to the South, and I will acknowledge that this history with some countries in particular is complicated and imperfect. Looking inward, it is impossible to tell the history of the United States without the inf immense influence of immigrants and migrants from the rest of the hemisphere. In general, over the past few decades, we have witnessed relative stability between nations and a general trend towards embracing democratic values that protect fundamental rights, empower people, promote opportunity for citizens throughout the hemisphere. While we certainly cannot take full credit, the United States' active engagement in the region in support of governments transitioning from dictatorships to democracy, of partnerships, training, and shared responsibility for supporting democratic institutions, combating criminal networks of economic development programs that help foster resilient communities has served our national security interests in tandem with supporting a stable and prosperous hemisphere in general. To consider external influences on the whole hemisphere is, of course, ambitious in one subcommittee hearing, but there are trends we see throughout. The United States is a constant. So I hope we can use this hearing as an opportunity not just to hear from our esteemed witnesses on their particular expertise, but to use this as an opportunity to highlight the importance of American, and in this subcommittee, let me say, United States leadership and engagement. There are, of course, a few notable exceptions to the trends I've spoken about. We have watched with horror and frustration as Nicolas Maduro continues to oppress the people of Venezuela, drag its economy and future further into the quagmire that the Chavez legacy created. Bolstered by shady bond purchases, Russia seems more than willing to help him in this effort. In Cuba, despite diplomatic efforts from the past administration, people are still jailed for expressing their opinions, still unable to earn meaningful incomes to improve their lives. As the Washington Post reported last month, Russia is increasing its presence in Nicaragua into the welcoming arms of Daniel Ortega. While I'm not convinced we are living in a new Cold War, we certainly have not yet fully escaped Russia's influence here in the United States or in the hemisphere. It is no coincidence that these countries in which citizens are suffering and whose fundamental human rights are oppressed all share an affinity for a particular country and a failed ideology pushed in the middle part of last century. On the other side, China, whose foreign policy objectives in the region seem confined to trade deals, has also steadily increased its presence in the region. China, however, notoriously cares little for the rule of law governance structures, or environmental and labor protections that ultimately secure long-term economic interests for a nation. As we build our own trade relationships, we must prioritize these components to best facilitate long-term mutually beneficial relationships. Bloviating about reneging on trade deals or throwing around threats of tariffs does nothing to improve the economic outlook of American business. In the worst case, it pushes our would-be partners towards other countries. I recognize there are those who would look to Chinese or Russian presence in our hemisphere and point out that the United States maintains an active presence well beyond our borders. Our interests, however, and intentions are clear. It is rooted in our principles and values, defensively supporting our allies in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, seeking investment opportunities for American businesses overseas, supporting nations who actively seek that support, and build democratic institutions and governance structures. So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses their assessments of the intentions and motivations of some of the primary external actors in Latin America. Mr. Farnsworth, in your written testimony, you know that most of China's actions do not pose a direct, quote, threat, per se, to the United States. But influence and soft power can be very commanding tools. Mr. Orolanghi, I'm curious to hear your assessment about whether some of the actions you've studied are confined to country-specific goals or in pursuit of broader regional ambitions. I'll conclude by saying that, as with the rest of the world, American engagement, investment, and aid to the Western Hemisphere is in our own national interests. It is our economic interest to support the growth of vibrant middle classes around our hemisphere who are more eager to do business with the United States than they are with China. It is in the interest of our national security to support stable and resilient countries that share our democratic values and our sense of shared security against external threats. With that, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, Dr. Orlenghi, we'll begin with you, and I would, uh, just for the witnesses' purposes, and I, it's kind of 
the pot calling the kettle black as a senator about to say this, but if we could limit to the about five minutes because it gives us more time for questions. We have your written statements. I imagine all three of the senators here and others who may not be in attendance have already read it. But uh, it's important, so there may be other points you may want to raise throughout the testimony, but the, the question and answer part is, is the one we really uh, get to the heart of the matter, and I know members have other engagements as well, so, and you're both veteran uh, witnesses at these hearings in the past, so, so Doctor, we'll begin with you, and thank you for being here. Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Menendez, members of the subcommittee, I thank you for this opportunity. The convergence of Iran-sponsored radical Islam with transnational organized crime in Latin America should be recognized as a serious threat to the national security of the United States and the integrity of its financial system. Congress and the executive branch have a panoply of tools at their disposal to address this threat. What's been missing is a coherent foreign policy that recognizes the importance of Latin America as a key arena of competition with Iran and puts in place the needed resources to blunt Iranian and Hezbollah threats. In his 2015 posture statement before Congress, General John Kelly lamented that, I quote, our limited intelligence capabilities make it difficult to fully assess the amount of terrorist financing generated in Latin America or understand the scope of possible criminal terrorist collaboration, end of quote. To date, there is still no accurate assessment of how much Hezbollah makes from illicit activities in Latin America, but this involvement is known and growing. That needs to change. Hezbollah's involvement in illicit trade is not just a law enforcement problem. Behind Hezbollah stands Iran, which seeks to leverage the group's networks to gain political influence while helping it expand its base of supporters and protect their illicit activities. Iran's and Hezbollah's operation in Latin America thus intersect and mutually reinforce one another. Both pursue goals that are not only diametrically opposed to U.S. interests, but also clearly pose a direct threat to American national security. In my written testimony, I discuss specifically the case of four Hezbollah suspects recently arrested on drug trafficking charges in the tri-border area of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay, otherwise known as TBA. They may also have been involved in human trafficking, counterfeiting, and immigration fraud. This adds to the growing evidence of Hezbollah's involvement in multi-billion dollar illicit trade schemes that offer generate from the TBA and whose revenue Hezbollah seeks to launder through the U.S. financial system. That should be a wake-up call to Congress to make the necessary means available for intelligence gathering and assessment of what is a significant national security threat. The recent designation of Venezuela's Vice President Tarek El Aysami under the Kingpin Act is a stark reminder of our vulnerabilities. El Aysami was designated alongside 13 U.S. companies he allegedly used to run his fraudulent activities through the U.S. Authorities froze substantial assets in his name here. That move should worry our enemies, but it is also significant that a Latin American politician with reported links to Iran, Hezbollah, and drug cartels felt confident enough to park his wealth in the U.S. Part of the problem with U.S. policy is that U.S. sanctions against Hezbollah operatives in the TBA, the hub of Hezbollah's illicit finance, are more than a decade old, and those targeted are still able to travel, transact, and conduct business as if there were no sanctions. It is important that the U.S. rectifies this state of affairs for two reasons. Sanctioned operatives may continue to engage in nefarious activities, and lack of sanctions enforcement undermines their credibility and deterrence. Another problem the U.S. needs to address. In Latin America, Hezbollah has benefited from a permissive environment where corrupt local officials connive with Hezbollah's illicit finance for their own gain. On November 2017, $1.2 billion money laundering investigation which a 2017 State Department report cites as evidence of corruption in Paraguay, offers proof of ongoing trade-based money laundering in the TBA and cover-up by local authorities. Local sources told me that the investigated companies were given 48-hour advance notice about the search warrants against them. U.S. officials familiar with the case privately complained of subsequent obstructionism at the highest levels of power preventing attempts by U.S. law enforcement agencies to gain access to files. U.S. offers to cooperate were politely but decisively rebuffed. In such a corrupt environment, Hezbollah thrives. The U.S. should demand that local governments put an end to this type of impunity or face consequences, and these could include, one, impose designations under Section 311 of the Patriot Act on financial institutions known to be used by Hezbollah financiers to move their revenues, Two, designate banking sectors of countries that facilitate Hezbollah's terror finance as zones of prime money laundering concern. Three, 
work with allies potentially through international forums like the Financial Action Task Force to blacklist government entities that cooperate with Hezbollah. Revoke or deny visas from those implicated in Hezbollah activity, including local politicians who facilitate or fail to prevent Hezbollah's illicit finance in their own jurisdiction. Engage Latin American governments to ensure they have adequate legislative tools to investigate terrorist activities and combat terror finance. And finally, persuade allies in the region to list Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. I thank you for your attention, and I very much look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. With one second on the clock. Excellent. And uh, just as a reminder to the members, uh, the minority, as is the right under our rules, has invoked a two-hour rule. So we will have to conclude this hearing at 1130. So we're going to chop through it fairly quickly here. Um, but I think we'll have plenty of time. Mr. Farnsworth, thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. And Mr. Ranking Member and Mr. Kane, thank you for the invitation to appear before you. And let me also up front thank you for your leadership on addressing the most salient issues in the hemisphere, including uh, Venezuela, which is a humanitarian crisis enveloping before our eyes. So thank you for your leadership in highlighting those issues. As requested, I will address the issue of China in the Americas. Let me give you, if I may, the bottom line first. China's entrance into the Americas has been one of the most significant developments of hemispheric affairs in this century. And while there are other important developments, such as populist government, govern, governance, which may be on the way out, China's engagement is, if anything, intensifying. China's dramatic economic rise has necessitated new commercial and economic partners worldwide. This has broad implications, particularly for the commodities-producing nations of South America. Nations such as Brazil, Chile, and Peru count China as their top trade partner. China is the second largest trade partner of Argentina, Colombia, and others. A number of nations have diversified their trade relations, proven beneficial, for example, during the global economic crisis of 2009. But because the Chinese approach to date has been overtly mercantilistic, it has also negatively impacted regional producers who now face supercharged competition in manufactured products while weighting the balance toward the production of primary goods just when Latin America is looking to move up the value chain. China's activities on the investment side are also having an impact particularly in sectors including energy, mining, and agriculture, where China feels the need to lock in access to supplies which sustain its economy. Of particular interest is energy, where China is an active participant, most recently in the deep water off the Gulf of Mexico, but also from Argentina to Venezuela and virtually every regional energy producer in between. Increasingly, China is also looking to expand its regional investment portfolio with a heightened focus on infrastructure development. Mr. Ranking Member, as you mentioned, uh, this is not necessarily a security threat per se to the United States, although it does change the competitive framework and it does have broader implications for U.S. policy interests, particularly as China looks to dominate industries that will increase, increasingly form the backbone of the global economy, including artificial intelligence, cloud computing, and clean energy. The Chinese investment model differs from others. To oversimplify, Chinese entities often pay a premium above market value for purchases in order to lock in assets. Once an investment is confirmed, Western investment values of job creation on the local economy, technology and management transfer, corporate governance, respect for labor rights, environmental protection, anti-corruption, and corporate social responsibility are not necessarily priorities. There are larger implications as well. Progress in Latin America to solidify democratic governance has been uneven but generally positive. It is unquestionably in the U.S. interest to support these efforts. China's entry into the Americas has complicated this agenda. For example, efforts to promote labor and environmental reforms through sound business practices and formal trade agreements are undermined when nations sign agreements with China that do not include similar provisions. And Chinese businesses are not expected to operate necessarily under the same prevailing conditions. Multilateral lending agencies like the World Bank, IMF, and Inter-American Development Bank that promote financial reforms and good governance become less relevant if borrowing nations can receive funds from China or Chinese-led institutions without conditionality. China's huge purchases of commodities and the provision of credits on favorable terms allows regional leaders the flexibility to postpone necessary economic and policy reforms consistent with open market democratic governance or to take actions that even harm democracy itself. It can also embolden anti-American leaders. The best example, of course, is Venezuela, which today is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. 
the so-called Bolivarian Revolution has been enabled, at least in part and until recently, by high oil prices as well as plentiful external financing from sources other than the United States and traditional international financial institutions. Financial support from China of well in excess of $50 billion, according to some estimates, has allowed the Venezuelan regime to accelerate its anti-democratic repressive course. At the same time, China's vision for the region is expanding. While engagement heretofore has primarily been economic and educational, such as language training through exchanges and its regional Confucius Institutes, there are indications that political and security considerations, especially on cyber issues, are also growing in importance. China issued its latest policy paper on Latin America and the Caribbean on, on November 24, 2016, which is a serious and ambitious effort to strengthen ties with the region from trade and economic development to space cooperation, to healthcare and global epidemics and global governance. This means that the United States must do a better job contending for the region. We need a more strategic approach based on the values that we hold dear and that we share with the majority of citizens across the Americas. Let me put this as succinctly as I can. The street protesters in Venezuela who seek outside support to end repression and restore democracy do not write their banners in Chinese or Russian or Persian. Protesters against the Castro regime do not fly the Chinese or Russian or Iranian flags during May Day parades. The example of the United States remains powerful for the citizens of the Americas, that is, so long as we do not forget that the promotion of our traditional values supports rather than undermines U.S. national security efforts, and we work to promote them. In many cases, Latin Americans and others prefer the United States as a more natural partner than China, but as is often said, you can't beat something with nothing. China's playing a multidimensional game. The United States should, not, should seek to compete on the playing field of greatest advantage to us, namely democratic governance and meeting the common aspirations of the people of the region. Meanwhile, we would also do well to reactivate an ambitious economic partnership agenda for the hemisphere, focusing, among other things, on energy and agriculture, as well as the rule of law and anti-corruption. We also need to reconsider the regional paradigm, frankly, that limits actions to the lowest common denominator as a means to achieve regional consensus on most issues, which has become essentially a straitjacket to U.S. policy implementation. Broadly speaking, a re-energized approach to the region, in my view, is required. Mr. Chairman, thank you again for the opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Farnsworth, and you have shamed yourself here today. You went a minute over, uh, Dr. Uh, was a second under, and I, of course, I'm, I'm joking, but I, again, I thank you both for your testimony. I'm going to defer to the, uh, to the ranking member. Let me just say I'm glad that Senator Gardner's here. He has numerous responsibilities today. He's been a leader on the issue of the Asia-Pacific region, and what's interesting is the interplay between the Asia-Pacific region and, and the Western Hemisphere, in particular, with, with China, and so I know he's got another meeting he has to get to, but I'm, I'm, his presence here today shows how all these things are interlinked. The ranking member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. I, uh, there's so many avenues here to pursue. Uh, I know that listening to you, Mr. Farnsworth, about China, uh, uh, it, it sounds like we're in a competition in economics, and I, I get that. But in some respects, China, whether purposely or not, uh, engagement and investments are more nefarious in my mind. For example, they don't observe the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which American companies do. Uh, and in, in that reality, as well as uh, in giving money without uh, conditionality, it changes the dynamics uh, of what we want to see countries do uh, in the hemisphere. So that while I have always been an advocate for American business and investment in our hemisphere, in the interests of U.S. businesses and the jobs that are created from them and the uh, profit that can be derived. I also have always viewed that a corollary to that is the better business practices that U.S. businesses bring, is observing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. In essence, all of those elements of good governance, in a sense, that they contribute uh, in the countries that they engage in. China doesn't really care about that. And so when we are competing with the Chinese in the hemisphere, the challenge is not just, in my mind, an economic one, but it is the influence that they extend, undermining the very essence of principles that we want to see countries build. Is that a fair uh, concern? Thank you for the question, and I think that's a keen observation. I would say that's not the intent of Chinese investment into the Western Hemisphere. I mean, their intent is to 
in some cases, deploy the massive reserves of foreign capital that they have and to put it to productive use, whether it's in Latin America or Africa or East Asia or what have you. Uh, and that's legitimate, but the implications of that are, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, as you implied. And so what we're seeing across Latin America is in countries with strong institutions, uh, we see uh, a recognition that sometimes the investment might look good on paper, but the implications for uh, some of the values of Latin Americans that we hold dear as well uh, can be undermined. And so you're seeing some pushback, you're seeing some legislation, you're seeing some recognition that all investment is not created equal. Yeah. You're also seeing the Chinese, in my view, move up the learning curve. They recognize that Latin America is different from other parts of the world and that there are expectations along the lines that you're indicating. So it's, a, it's an evolving process. Well, it's challenging when you want to have the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank promoting some critical uh, core values in governance and uh, rule of law opportunities uh, as well as economic development if I have to live with the burden of this and I can have this without the burden you know human nature is it's going to go to the, to the, to the least consequential uh, response I look at this and I look at in a combination a different way why does China uh, and for that fact Russia make huge investments in a country like Venezuela who clearly uh, is on a huge downward spiral uh, economically as well as uh, in terms of civil unrest and, uh, and the human rights and democracy of its people. When I see uh, Senator Rubio and I recently sent a letter to the Treasury Department about Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft's stake in Venezuela, state-owned oil company Pedavesa, uh, but China has also provided financial support to Venezuela, as you mentioned in, in your remarks. So when you see a country that is ultimately taking its most significant national asset, which is its oil, through PDVSA, sells nearly 50% of it uh, potentially to Russia through Rosneft. If it defaults, Rosneft will own 49.9% plus whatever they purchase on the open market which very well could lead to a 50, 51% ownership. And they own Sitco in the United States uh, of America, which has very significant uh, oil infrastructure in our country. And then that's just the Russian side. Now the Chinese come in and invest a lot of money. Other than raw material, uh, are there other concerns that we should have? And I, mean, I invite either, either one of you to make a comment about that. Let me make, just make a brief comment, and then um, if my colleague would care to as well. Um, you know, I think the China and Russia situation is different. Uh, China, because of its own domestic issues, has been looking worldwide to find and procure guaranteed access to natural resources wherever they are. And Venezuela has the world's largest supply of oil. So by definition, China is going to be interested in that and has been playing a long game in Venezuela. Uh, I don't think that China is particularly enamored with the leadership in Venezuela. In fact, I think that they would prefer something different, but they're not there for political purposes. They're there for natural resources, just like they're in, in other countries in Latin America for similar purposes. And one of the things that we found is that the Chinese investors don't really care that much about the government uh, in the country that they're operating in so long as they're allowed to do business and so long as they're allowed to uh, get the upside from that that they uh, are looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, from the perspective of what does that mean? Well, it means they've invested a whole lot of money in the country that they may not get back, but they've amortized that against future uh, deliveries of oil. So from the Venezuelan regime, it makes a lot of sense because they get the money up front, they spend it for their own political purposes, uh, and then they give the bill to a later generation of Venezuelans, and you know it's all good for them. So it's a marriage of convenience. And I worry about the continuing, when, when, when the bill comes due, and, uh, absolutely. and, and Maduro's not uh, in power anymore, uh, what China will demand of uh, the uh, future uh, governance of the, of the country. I, I think that's uh, a I have question. other questions, but I'll, I'll wait. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez have been leaders on this issue, and I thank you and the partnerships that we've been able to, to forge um, as it relates to China and other uh, activities around the globe. Uh, China has provided Venezuela with over $60 billion in financing over the past decade. You've talked about that. Uh, most recently, a $2.2 billion loan for uh, oil development in November of 2016. Uh, news events talk about uh, involvement of uh, fake news in Europe, uh, 
elections, hacking, United States, Russia's involvement in placing news stories in the United States. Uh, to what extent does the Chinese government participate in those kinds of activities in South America, Venezuela in particular, uh, providing either anti-democratic government assistance, uh, any signs of that, what you see, and how the U.S. could play a role in pushing back? I personally don't see that. I mean, China has a very robust um, global uh, effort in terms of uh, media and in terms of uh, news. Um, I personally haven't seen an overt effort to promote, for example, the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Again, um, from my perspective, China's interests in the region have primarily been economic, and in fact, what they have tried to do assiduously is to stay away from the politics of the region because they don't want to get wrapped up in it. That's not why they're there. They're there to do business and benefit themselves. At some point, that bleeds into politics, and we've been talking about that a little bit, but, um, but that overt engagement is something that, from my perspective, they've tried to avoid. If I may add, yes. uh, sir, the, uh, the, the actor that is perhaps most actively involved in Venezuela and also elsewhere in Latin America in promoting uh, uh, strident anti-democratic values and, uh, and a very militant anti-American rhetoric and, uh, and posture is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And for the Islamic Republic of Iran, Venezuela is perhaps the, the closest ally uh, alongside uh, uh, Evo Morales Bolivia in, uh, in Latin America. It is Iran's forward operating base. It is the place where the uh, Iranian uh, missionary network really has uh, uh, began uh, uh, building its own infrastructure. Um, it is the place where uh, the Iranian regime launched its uh, Spanish language propaganda network, uh, Ispan TV, uh, in 2012. Uh, that network shares a considerable amount of human resources, uh, starting from journalists, uh, and, and production material with Telesur, which is the, uh, the Venezuelan equivalent. Um, some of that propaganda uh, spills over uh, into other areas of the world. Uh, there are clear, there's clear evidence of connections between uh, the Spanish propaganda network for Latin America and its use in Spain, uh, so that's a bridge into Europe. And therefore, I think from an ideological perspective, uh, uh, the focus of concern should really be uh, Iran. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Admiral Kurt Tidd, uh, Commander of Southcom, stated in Southcom's two seven, 2017 posture statement to Congress that China, and I quote, cooperates with Latin America on space, potential nuclear power projects, and telecommunications networks, which could pose security concerns to the United States. Could you talk a little bit about Admiral Tidd's comments? He's accurate. And um, China's not shy about saying that. In their most recent uh, policy paper toward Latin America, which was released late last year in November, space cooperation was clearly a, a, a one of the aspects of uh, priority. Um, Latin America, in some ways, sees this as good for themselves. It transfers technology. It gives them the opportunity to participate in some of these issues. Again, I think we have to see what the real intent is there. Um, the question of cooperation toward technology and toward uh, space exploration is um, on its face uh, potentially dual use, but I think we have to recognize uh, where that may or may not be going. So, uh, yes, it's a very open uh, part of their strategy. Uh, and if you look at what the Chinese have laid out very publicly, it's a comprehensive approach to Latin America. Now, not all of the commitments that China has made over recent years have come to pass, particularly announcements of multi-billion dollars of investment, and you know, you get the news reports and you get the media, but, but those investments don't always necessarily flow. So we have to see what actions follow these words. Um, to the extent that it does become dual use and becomes a threat to the United States, we certainly have to be aware of that. Dr. Odell-Lengi, if you would like to comment. The only thing that I would like to add, again, in, in, uh, in relation to Iran, is, uh, is of course, that uh, especially during the sanctions era uh, and perhaps at the height of the Venezuela-Iran bilateral relation uh, with, with uh, uh, the late Chavez and the former president Ahmadinejad of Iran uh, in, in power and their very close relationship. Uh, Venezuela uh, was used by Iran um, not just for sanction evasion in the financial sector but also for joint projects uh, in the missile, in the missile uh, program. Um, 
these projects, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can tell, are still ongoing. Um, the relationship is not just economic and ideological. Uh, there is obviously a clear component of, of military and technological cooperation, which con should continue to be monitored. Dr. Rolengi, in terms of the sanctions lifting under the Iran nuclear deal, what kind of uptake did you see in that activity in Venezuela? The, uh, it's interesting to see that uh, during the, uh, the entire duration of the uh, Rouhani presidency, while the, ne the negotiations were ongoing, um, the, you did not have the same level of bilateral visits and, and delegations uh, from Venezuela to Iran, and more importantly from Iran to Venezuela, uh, occurring at the same speed and seniority you saw during Ahmadinejad. And uh, um, that combined with the fact that the volume of trade between Iran and Latin American countries um, and uh, the fruition of a lot of the projects that were signed during that era that didn't happen was interpreted as a sign that uh, Iran's uh, interest in the region may, may be waning or perhaps that, that the failure of all those ambitious projects to come to fruition uh, indicated uh, a disenchantment by Latin American leadership towards the Iranians. I see a, a very different picture. First of all, uh, since the agreement was signed, you have seen important uh, uh, visits uh, by President Rouhani, by Foreign Minister Zarif to the region. Uh, and, and beneath the surface, the amount of formal diplomatic relations and also uh, non, non, what you could call non-governmental uh, relations that are, you know, in those countries are really sort of driven by the regime uh, uh, through non-official means, have continued the pace. Um, we, we see a continuation of investment uh, by Iran uh, in the region. We see a continuation of uh, uh, dedication of resources by the Iranian regime in the ideological struggle, uh, in the export of the revolution, that they see a priority in the region to, to flip countries to their side. We see the transfer of funds uh, and political support to anti-American movements in the region and certainly the continued partnership with uh, um, Bolivarian regimes and anti-American regimes. So I think that the, um, the overall assessment is that the infrastructure the Iranians created during the sanctions era and the infrastructure that Hezbollah continues to develop, uh, particularly its partnership with, uh, with organized crime, are there and are being leveraged uh, as needs be. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And uh, I have a, a quick meeting to attend to in the ante room. So I know uh, Senator Menendez, the ranking member, had a couple of additional questions. I'm going to turn it over to him, but I'm not leaving. I'll be back. Senator Menendez. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm not going to ask unanimous consent for anything. So <laughs> uh, I have a question. I know neither of you are Russia experts, uh, but maybe you can sh shed light uh, or thoughts. Um, Russia's recent actions in uh, Nicaragua, as reported in the Washington Post uh, last month, uh, the article cites a number of officials who think that this new ground tracking station ultimately is to be used to increase Russian influence or surveillance of Americans and or the United States. Do you have any insights into that? Any, any perceptions, Mr. Farnsworth? Well, thank you for the question. I, I also saw the report, um, and I suppose that is certainly a possibility. I don't have access to the intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, which I think would probably paint a clearer picture. From my perspective, the uh, Russian engagement in Latin America until, um, well, since the Cold War, but until now, has essentially been tactical, and it's been a way to promote uh, particularly in the arms industry, arms sales and the procurement of hard currency. Uh, a lot of what was sold to Venezuela was clearly not for Venezuelan military interests. They don't need any of that uh, material except to oppress their own citizens. But the Russians are very happy to sell it because it brings hard currency with, to, to industries that they wanted to support. Uh, we've seen a lot of that. It didn't seem to have much of a political component to the extent that there's a benefit to the a regime in Venezuela, okay, they probably are reasonably happy about that. But what we may be seeing a little bit more of now is a more robust presence of Russia into the region. Um, it's hard to speculate on what the purpose of that may be, uh, but from my perspective, I don't necessarily see it because they want to um, return to the Cold War or have Latin America as, as their chief allies, but rather, frankly, to annoy the United States. 
and to keep track on some of the things we may be doing uh, because of what they perceive us to be doing in some of the countries around them and in Europe. So it's a way to kind of play part of the global chess game with Latin America again as, uh, as, as the playing field. That's interesting. I hope it's only that. Uh, an annoyance is an annoyance uh, by the same token. I wonder what uh, Ortega is thinking about when he has an MCC agreement with the United States that has served Nicaragua well to be inviting uh, uh, the Russians in for a monitoring uh, and tracking station uh, that can, I, I don't think it's for other neighbors in the hemisphere except for the United States. So uh, it makes me wonder whether or not sometimes, uh, whether it be China, whether it be Russia, whether it be Iran, that the way in which they seek to use their economic influence is far different than the way we seem to. We, we seem to be pretty up and up on the way in which we use our influence. Uh, but they seem uh, not necessarily to care about uh, those elements of using their influence. And uh, I, I sometimes get concerned that in our desire to have uh, good governance, rule of law, which I'm a big supporter of uh, human rights, democracy, uh, that we don't use in pursuit of those goals our economic levers sufficiently enough to engage countries. Because I, 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 I'd, I'd be looking at Ortega as if there's a new compact to be reviewed or the conditions of this compact and say, what are you doing? Would that be an unfair uh, use of American power? I, I don't think it's unfair at all. I think it's entirely within our... Uh, rights to take a look at how we're spending our money, <laughs> our taxpayer money. Dr. Oralnahi, uh, last question. Uh, do you see the concerns that you've raised as it relates to Iran, Hezbollah, uh, and uh, related uh, entities in a, a, as a foothold, or do you see a greater regional uh, ambition? Uh, and if you see a greater regional ambition, do you see the work being laid, the foundation being laid to fulfill that greater regional ambition? Thank you for your question, uh, which, is, which is a very important one. I, I do see uh, both, uh, both points uh, playing out. Uh, the, the networks that Hezbollah is building, developing, expanding, enhancing in Latin America serve mainly the purpose of maintaining the loyalty of expatriate communities there on the one hand and uh, provide steady flows of financial support for its operations back home. And so there is, of course, a political dimension there to ensure that the, the local uh, powers that be will leave this operation uh, in place, will not uh, try to dismantle them, will not interfere with them. There is a, a, a concerted effort to use the money that these networks yield to buy political influence and to ensure, ensure impunity. And that, of course, has an impact uh, on the quality of governance uh, uh, in the specific countries. There is also a broader design. I think that's uh, when it comes to, to Iran, and that is uh, uh, Iran views the uh, entire region as a place where American influence can be pushed back and rolled over. Uh, they believe, and they have always believed, that the, op the operation that the Iranians mounted in Latin America began uh, in the early days of the Iranian revolution. In, uh, the, the first uh, envoy that was dispatched uh, for this purpose came to Buenos Aires in uh, 1982. And uh, the idea was that Latin America is a fertile ground for the export of the revolution because there are both governments and movements which are uh, wedded to a similar political agenda of uh, diminishing uh, U.S. influence in the region or fighting uh, Western imperialism, as they call it. Um, the Iranians uh, viewed that uh, perhaps as the most promising area for the export of the revolution. And at some point in the process, they also realized that they could somehow expand and export not just the revolutionary values, but their faith as a, as a vector uh, to fulfill the revolutionary ideals of Latin Americans. And so, in a way, they repackaged the, the Shia uh, iconic 
founding uh, figure of, uh, of Hussein as an Islamic variant of the Che Guevara and built a whole uh, panoply of tools to promote this idea and to actually um, uh, uh, recruit people to their cause. This is a, 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 a four-decade-long project that is ongoing, and there is actually literature produced by the people involved that says Latin America is a continent that 500 years ago was, was conquered by the Catholic religion in less than a century through violence uh, and conquest at, point, at times. Um, we can do it too. So I think that the design there, the project, is, is a lot broader, is strategic, and the target is to push back American influence in the region and export the values of the Iranian Revolution. Thank you. Um, so as a continuation here, unless any of the other members appear, we'll spend the next 20 minutes pretty much off the clock uh, back and forth here on a, on a, on a dialogue and, um, and, and go from there. But uh, and so Senator Menendez may need to go somewhere, on the, but if he's here, I'll more than happy to jump in. Let me, let me start. We have a lot of topics to cover. I want to start particularly with Venezuela because we talked a lot about outside actors. Um, if you look at their financial situation, their debt service, which they have a real problem making, the, the financing, the, their ability to make those, uh, those payments appears to be coming from three sources at this point. One is private banks, whether it's an investment bank or a broad multinational. Um, and, and the hope there is that we can make and send a very clear message to these banks that they are active participants in funding repression uh, when they conduct that, that sort of financial transaction. But the other are state actors, Russia and China. And I think both of these nations, despite their interests in you know, creating a foothold in the hemisphere, also want to get paid. In essence, they want their money back. They don't view this as a gift. They view it as a loan that gives them influence, but they want their money back. But particularly in the case of Russia, they can't afford to be making loans that don't get paid back. And in the case of China, I have found that nothing offends them more than the loss of face. And to basically be making bad loans that you don't get paid back in is a face-losing embarrassment. Um, how would you advise members of the Senate and the Congress abroader about articulating that message? Because here's the bottom line. China and Russia are lending the Maduro regime money that is never going to be paid back. They're never going to get that money back. And I understand that the hope of shaming them into not funding a repressive regime is that standard's probably too high to meet in the case of Russia and, 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 and China. But I do think they understand not getting paid back. Um, and so how would you uh, best uh, argue to them, or what's the best strategy that you would advise us on moving forward to let both of those nations know that not only is this something that affects our bilateral relationship with them, but they're not going to get paid. I mean, these guys simply don't have the funds and the resources to pay them and they're going to eventually uh, going to default one way or the other, and they're going to get stuck with this bill. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I think this is a fundamental question that you've hit on, and this is why I keep saying that um, China's fundamental or, or, or primary interest in the Western Hemisphere is pragmatic. They want what they need to fuel their own economy. They're not that interested in the politics of the country uh, in which they're engaged, so long as they're able to do business. Part of doing business is getting paid, obviously, just as you've articulated. And so from the perspective of an outside observer, I think, first of all, the United States, uh, certainly the Senate, but also the executive branch, should be in an active dialogue right now with China. I've been urging this for a long time, uh, that China has a huge interest in Venezuela for precisely the purposes you've said, uh, and to uh, bring China into the discussion of uh, not just debt repayment, but what comes after the Maduro regime. Because from my perspective, the best workout plan that you're going to be able to get for international creditors from Venezuela will be with an opposition that's in power, that's democratically elected and is sustainable and has the authority of the Venezuelan people to, pay, to, to meet its debts. Now, it's unclear whether they'll be able to meet all their debts. The, you know, there may be a haircut that's required. Who knows? That's down the road. But from my perspective, I would work with the Chinese to say, look, let's work this out together, but 
the current path is unsustainable. So the earlier that we have free and fair elections in Venezuela, the earlier that we uh, have the political prisoners released, the earlier that there's a sustainable government in place, the better prospects we together have for getting paid. Uh, now, I think the Russian scenario is different, as we've discussed. I think they do have more of an interest in terms of the government in power, um, and, but they have also a different, um, a different uh, debt profile with reference to Venezuela, uh, and it's less of the official loans, and it's more um, direct uh, engagement in the energy sector. So, um, but to me, the, the most viable outcome for uh, economic uh, gain of debtors is a viable democratically elected government in Venezuela, and we don't have that right now. Doctor, do you have any? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I do have uh, an additional point to make uh, with regard to Iran and Venezuela, rather. Um, during the sanctions era, uh, Iran used Venezuela as uh, a money laundering uh, uh, place, as a place to evade sanctions. The uh, entities that Iran uh, created with Venezuela jointly for this purpose were delisted um, under the nuclear uh, agreement. Um, I think that gives us leverage because the Iranians do not have any desire to see entities relisted and that is something that could be used as, as a threat to diminish uh, their involvement. The second point I would make is that, of course, the Venezuelan regime has uh, plundered its own national resources in partnership with Iran and others uh, by using these tools. Uh, and it's also getting revenues by increasingly becoming involved with uh, drug cartels. The revenues from those illicit activities that we have seen in the case of Vice President Aissami uh, end up often uh, in the financial system of the United States. So here you have additional leverage going after these assets, going after more individuals in the Venezuelan regime involved in this type of illicit activities on the side, going after entities that the Iranians have created, including uh, joint ventures in, uh, in, uh, in the industrial sector, uh, as sanctionable activities that support the Maduro regime and are complicit in the repression inside the country. As an additional point on, uh, on this topic, you know, we're talking about external factors from outside the Western Hemisphere, but these are somehow interrelated also within the Western Hemisphere. Uh, in, on the, in the case of Venezuela, one of the uh, external actors within Venezuela is the government of Cuba, who, which has both provided sort of expertise and personnel on the intelligence, passport, internal security side, um, and, and also in uh, you know, all sorts of logistical support on intelligence and the like. One of the phenomena that has emerged from that is the so-called colectivos, or these citizen militias, for lack of a better term, uh, who in many cases are well-armed and sometimes actually undertaking much of the repression that's now going on. And I think there's a broader conversation to have about what happens down the road even when those groups spin out of control. In essence, there will come a point where these groups establish, if they have not done so already, an independent character independent of state control, so that Maduro can't even control them anymore or tell them, even if he wanted to tell them to stop, he would not be able to, and you could foresee a conflict between these groups and, for example, the National Guard. But in the interim, when you have a bunch of well-armed individuals in the street, uh, they also need to make a living. And when the Venezuelan government is no longer able to pay them uh, to conduct repression, then what happens? Then these groups turn to illicit means. So you now have well-armed individuals who perhaps initially entered this for purposes of money and or ideology, who now understand uh, how to use weapons, how to conduct violence, and are looking for a revenue source. And the experience of that in the hemisphere has been they turn to illicit activities such as drugs and trafficking and the like. And further complicating it is uh, the possession of pretty uh, sophisticated weaponry. You see multiple... For example, there's this uh, Miami Herald article from the 24th of April of this year, which it talks about uh, the Venezuelan government's decision to arm civilians to defend the country's socialist revolution is rekindling fears of terrorist and criminal organizations acquiring part of the nation's arsenal, which includes a large stockpile of shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles. Um, and, and I would say that, that this we may not view this as an external factor per se, it is something that an external actor, be it a transnational criminal group or an international terrorist organization looking to buy such weaponry, could take advantage of. And perhaps it's a topic that is unfair because 
it's, it's an emerging topic and one that neither one of you perhaps has spent a tremendous amount of time on, but your initial impressions about whether that is something that is speculative or the existence of a large amount of weaponry in the hands of individuals looking to make a buck, isn't that always a recipe for disaster in terms of whether it's an outside actor coming in and buying them or those groups using it uh, to fund other activities within the, to, to conduct other sort activities within the region? Mr. Chairman, I don't think that's an idle concern at all. I think that's a very real concern. Uh, in fact, it's precisely the phenomenon we saw in Central America coming out of the civil wars in the 1980s and early 1990s. You had peace processes, you had peace accords, but you also had a number of uh, generally young uh, men uh, with no marketable skills except the ability to pull a trigger uh, and live on the local economy. And once they couldn't find jobs in 1995, 1996, 1997, many of them began to turn to gangs and began to turn to uh, crime to sustain themselves. And as we know, Central America right now is racked with some of the highest criminal rates, uh, certainly in the hemisphere, but even worldwide. It's a real problem uh, that we're all wrestling with now in terms of uh, financial support and other things to try to help resolve that issue. That developed out of the peace accords that were not necessarily fully implemented, but nonetheless, even to the extent they were implemented, did not touch all of the combatants and provide a way to, uh, to make uh, living on the, uh, in the legal economy. So that's not an idle concern at all. The other issue that I would mention, you, you brought in uh, Cuba into the conversation, and I think that's precisely right. It's fascinating to me how uh, many of the people who are so quick to condemn the possibility that the United States might do anything on Venezuela as interventionism uh, then are precisely the same people who turn a blind eye to what Cuba has clearly been doing in Venezuela now uh, since President Chavez was elected at the end of the last century. So um, that's a double standard that uh, I wish didn't exist, uh, but I think you're right to uh, point it out. If I may just add, Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, watching the uh, dramatic images uh, of, of uh, repression that, that come through social media from Venezuela, I can't help but, uh, uh, but see the, 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 the similarity in the images with uh, the repression we, we saw uh, in 2009, right after the fraudulent elections in Iran that, uh, that brought uh, uh, Ahmadinejad uh, to his second term. The militias that you refer to uh, uh, do not only benefit from training uh, by the Cubans, uh, but they seem to follow uh, the model of the, the Basij, the Basij uh, uh, popular militias that Iran has created as a kind of a passive defense, popular defense um, uh, army in the country which is designed specifically to countenance and put down uh, um, you know, civil, civil opposition, uh, organized civil opposition. In Iran, it worked very well, and part of the reason why the Iranians have advised uh, the Chavez and then the Maduro regime uh, on this issue is that they know how to put down a revolution because they successfully uh, uh, produced one in their own time. I think that that highlights the problem of, of the external uh, in, interference you have, uh, but it should also invite some, some measures, uh, you know, well short of, uh, of, uh, of the kind of interventionism that America often unfairly is accused of, uh, namely to, again, use economic warfare against those in Iran and perhaps in other places closer to home, such as Cuba, that are dispatching uh, military advisors, that are providing the weaponry, uh, and the financial resources to make these militias operate. So we have about nine minutes left to turn, turn into a pumpkin. So um, let me try to cover three quick topics, and they're all important. The first is, when we speak about Iran, one of the things people don't realize is that part of their statecraft is asymmetry. In essence, the asymmetrical ability to attack the United States, both of you alluded to it in your testimony. What that means for people that may not be aware of the terminology is they're not going to try to build 10 aircraft carriers. What they are going to try to do is have cells or groups friendly and under their direction throughout the world who, in the case of conflict with the United States or the West, could conduct attacks in the homeland. They, they, obviously, the Iranian regular army or even the Quds Force cannot transplant 10,000 fighters to come into somewhere in the United States and fight us, but they could potentially flip a switch and give the signal for groups that they've implanted in the region and throughout the world to attack us. And one of the places where we're concerned that occur would occur is here in the Western Hemisphere where individuals and or cells and capacities, be it through safe houses or the like, have accumulated either weaponry or explosives or both and personnel with the capacity that at a moment of conflict 
could conduct attacks against the United States and or its interests in the region, potentially in the homeland, uh, benefiting from visa-free travel uh, to attack us. That, that is something we don't talk about nearly enough, but that remains uh, a threat that we should be vigilant of, and, and perhaps both of you could comment on that uh, so we, uh, briefly so we can, in the eight minutes we have left, get to the other two. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Uh, it's a very important point, and, and again, I'd like to uh, uh, to refer to uh, a case I, I discussed more extensively in my, in my written statement um, of a recent arrest in Paraguay of a, of a suspect Hezbollah trafficker. Uh, the individual in question was arrested a month ago, is in custody, and in addition to being a drug trafficker, it turns out, uh, he was accredited by the local Ministry of Immigration uh, as a mediator to facilitate applications for permanent residency and citizenship, which is fairly easy to obtain with uh, through a small investment to begin with. Um, the, the rumor from sources down there is that this individual was involved in, in as little as 500 and possibly many more applications throughout the years by Lebanese men, mostly, coming from South Lebanon, uh, to reside uh, permanently and to get involved in business uh, locally along the frontier between Paraguay and uh, Brazil, which is, of course, uh, a hub for illicit finance for Hezbollah. So here is the concern. The concern is that the networks that are in place, which could help uh, uh, the Iranian asymmetric model you, you, uh, you described, um, are actually bringing in people uh, more and more through the uh, lax immigration rules in South America. These people are in place. They're building infrastructure. They have, uh, over time, they acquire citizenship, which makes it easier for them to apply for a visa and come into the United States. Uh, they're using uh, that, uh, that, qualifica- that, uh, that status they have gained already to develop uh, money laundering networks sometimes building companies, establishing companies here in the United States and using the financial system here, but they're also there to provide the logistical infrastructure support when Iran decides that such you know, terror, terrorist actions are, uh, are called for uh, to provide the local support and network for cells that come from Iran or from Lebanon uh, in order to carry out these attacks. So the, the, the danger is very much there, and it should require additional attention from U.S. Just in the interest of time, because I'm trying to, I guess I'll have to limit it to one more topic, but it's one I talked about in my opening statement, and that is Trinidad, which by far has you know, the largest per capita contribution to ISIS of foreign fighters of any nation in the Western Hemisphere. It's actually a startling number, 125 for a nation whose population is just a percentage, a small percentage of what ours so uh, the United States, we have 240 times their population, um, and yet they have about half as many uh, ISIS fighters. So it's just a significant per capita. Um, and, and you don't hear a lot of discussion about this. But the concern, of course, is that uh, these individuals would return back uh, to Trinidad and at some point are three-hour flight away from South Florida, where I live, and my home state, but also the mainland of the United States. So it is, is, I know that the risk of radicalization in Trinidad is not new. Uh, in fact, I believe it was a radicalized group that led a coup there in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, early 90s. But where, how has that evolved? Is it getting enough attention beyond a couple articles? And uh, is it your view that the Trinidad government understands the, the threat posed by this and is prepared to work with us to, to confront it? Um. I am not entirely familiar with the situation specific to Trinidad. I do know, however, uh, I do see, however, uh, the the broader picture across the region where, on the one hand, Iran, and on the other hand, uh, radical Sunni movements, both backed by state and and otherwise, are actually uh, conducting a very aggressive uh, 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 drive to radicalize, to convert, and to recruit. Uh, we see the presence of radical Sunni preachers uh, from uh, from Mexico all the way down uh, to the southern cone. Equally for the Iranians, they are probably competing for for recruits. Uh, but the phenomenon is very much there; is underreported, and I think that the governments in Latin America, uh, perhaps for a lack of uh, understanding, capacity, uh, uh, are not treating the problem. Uh, seriously enough, there is plenty of open source evidence of radical preachers flying in from Qatar, from the Gulf, from Iran, straight into Latin America. There are direct flights now 
from, from the Gulf into Latin America. They come, they preach, there is uh, uh, plenty of evidence of radicalization in local mosques, and they come back. I assume that Trinidad and Tobago, the problem is the same, and because it's such a small nation with limited uh, uh, resources for governance, their capacity to confront this problem, even if there is political will, is limited. And so uh, help-building capacity, I think, is a key component of what U.S. policy should be. Mr. Chairman, only uh, two quick things, if I may. The first is to thank you again for your leadership on these issues. It's tremendously important, and it is noticed, and it's very much appreciated, so thank you. Um, the second is, without specific reference to Trinidad, um, this is an issue, I think, uh, there is an issue of cyber uh, that if we look forward in terms of emerging potential threats for the region, uh, and we bring in Russia and other countries like that, to the extent that there are political interests that can be manipulated in the electoral process, etc. That's something that I would encourage people to give increasing uh, attention to because as we go down the road, we've seen what's happened in Europe, etc. This is uh, a potential for mischief-making in Latin America to the extent people are so inclined. And that's an interesting point because uh, many of these countries, unlike the United States, have centralized voting systems. People don't realize we have over 9,000 separate jurisdictions that conduct elections at the county level primarily, in many countries around the world and certainly in the Western Hemisphere, the elections are conducted by a central entity uh, that counts the votes for the whole country. And so you don't need to hack 9,000 or nine, uh, the strategic parts of the 9,000 infrastructure in terms of the United States. You, you can very much do it by, and that's just on the hacking front, not to mention the influence part. So, but we appreciate both of your testimony. I apologize. We probably could, other topics we could have touched on. We've got this situation here today where uh, the two-hour rule has been invoked, and so that would end our hearing here at the, any moment now. And I don't know what happens, but I guess if we get one minute past, I may go to jail or something. I don't know. So uh, at least Senate jail. Uh, but, uh, but I appreciate both of your willingness to come here today and talk about this topic because I wish it got more attention. I hope it will get more attention, as I said yesterday, uh, and you were there, Mr. Farnsworth, and that um, I think in many ways the Western Hemisphere is an answer, not a problem. And, and hopefully we'll influence on, we'll talk, today we talked about some of the challenges in the region, but this committee spends also a lot of time talking about the opportunities, and I hope we'll spend more time. Uh, the, uh, the record uh, for this hearing is going to remain open for, for 48 hours, and you may receive a written question or so from some of the members that were not able to attend. If you can, we'd ask you to answer it so it can be part of our record for future consideration. With that, I, I thank you both and the members who came, and, and this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>